There. That's real balance in point. The Outline World Dispatch. It's Wednesday, April 19th, 2017. I'm Aaron Edwards, and today on The Dispatch, Adrian Jeffries on an anti-union podcast that Uber pushes out to its drivers. The Uber Seattle Partner Podcast. And Andy Martino on the new Big Brother. The uh, Border Patrol agents give themselves the right to conduct warrantless searches of electronics. Here's The Dispatch. The future. Uber has argued repeatedly that federal law prohibits its drivers from forming unions. But in December of 2015, Seattle became the first city to allow drivers for Uber, Lyft, and other ride-hailing services to unionize. The bill passes. Now the city's 10,000 drivers are at the center of Uber's nationwide political, legal, and media campaign against unions. One piece of this anti-union campaign is the Uber Seattle Partner Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Brooke Steger, the general manager for Uber in Seattle, and I want to welcome you to the latest episode in our partner podcast series. Today, I'm I edited a piece by Charlie Heller, who listened to all 23 episodes of the podcast for the outline. It shows up right inside the Uber app. Drivers aren't required to listen, but the notification stays at the bottom of the screen for four or five days. The podcast is hosted by Brooke Steger, Uber's general manager for the Pacific Northwest. We'll be talking about who's behind the ordinance first. Our next episodes will cover what the ordinance means for drivers in the community, who gets to vote, and who will represent drivers. It features drivers who ask Steger questions about unionizing and talk about how much Uber has helped them. Driving for Uber has been really good for me. I mean, it has really helped me financially and has helped you know, my family financially. That's Charles, a driver and frequent guest who's been with Uber for over a year and a half. So I'm really kind of confused about all this collective bargaining and stuff and wondering, who's behind this? I mean, I've heard that the Teamsters are behind this, this or- doing the ordinance and passing a law that we didn't know about. And, you know, I'm just wondering, who is really behind this? It's our understanding that the Teamsters are behind this ordinance. And, you know, they've been losing members consistently over the course of the last few years, and they're trying to find a new source of revenue. And so we see, you know, drivers on the platform as a target for them and and a new source of income. This is one of the podcast's main themes, emphasizing the Teamsters as an enemy that doesn't want Uber to be allowed to operate at all. But they've definitely put in jeopardy the ability to get a safe and reliable ride multiple times. And, And so we know with this ordinance, the Teamsters... There are elements of truth to Uber's narrative. The company does provide an easy, flexible source of income that did not exist before. Unionization would force higher wages, and that could result in less work for drivers. So why organize? Well, between unpaid time between rides, lack of overtime pay, the cost of maintaining a car, and Uber's ability to slash fares and earnings without warning, it's a precarious gig. According to the company's own numbers, half of drivers quit within a year. The Teamsters' efforts to silence local drivers isn't okay. And whatever happens, we'll continue to stand up and fight alongside the driver community. Well, Brooke, that's really great. I mean, it, it feels so wonderful to know that Uber is really going to bat for all the drivers because... I don't... Uber argues that the union would end drivers' ability to choose their own hours, exclude some part-timers who don't work enough hours to qualify for the union, and require Uber to give the Teamsters contact information for all drivers. These arguments are pretty thin, though. The issue of flexible hours would only be threatened if drivers voted for it, and the part-time threshold works out to less than five rides a week. 
And on the issue of giving driver contact information to the Teamsters, how else would you contact workers with no schedule or workplace? And so what I really want to do is urge other drivers to make sure that they're fully informed. I know I'm going to be keeping tabs on the latest at t.uber.com and then forward slash CBO. There are enough drivers opposed to unionization that they've shown up to speak out against the Teamsters at public events. I'm glad you found it helpful. It's great to see drivers coming together as a community to take action, and we're happy to support all of you in that. As is best demonstrated in America, we must stand together against entities that want to limit our ability to determine our own direction. I do not see any added value that the Teamsters can contribute to our success. What happens next now that the Teamsters have been approved as a QDR? I expect the Teamsters will give Uber and potentially other companies... The Uber Seattle Partner Podcast arc is one of growing urgency. Back in the days of Episode 4, Steger winkingly compares signing a union card to marriage. Uh, Someone put it very, very well that it's kind of like marriage. It's very, very easy to get into that relationship and to get into that marriage, but it's very difficult, much more difficult to get out. But by Episode 20, she sounds genuinely scared. You don't sign either the emails that they're sending you or the cards that they're presenting to you. You are not in the Teamsters' pocket. Drivers out there, they're listening. You need to find out what is really going on by reading the city's rules, and you will have no confusion about what's really going on. The Uber Seattle Partner Podcast wants to convince drivers that its union busting is done out of concern for the driver community. And as of April 4, the rule change that would have allowed drivers to unionize has been temporarily halted while lawsuits play out. The fight to unionize is still ongoing, however, and of course, the Uber Seattle Partner Podcast is still publishing new episodes. You can also visit our Greenlight Hub down in Tukwila. And if all else fails, we have the appeals panel, which you can find out information at at the Greenlight Hub. Power. In the first full month after Donald Trump's inauguration, warrantless searches of electronic devices by the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol exploded beyond anything on record. According to numbers obtained by NBC, border agents searched more devices than in all of 2015, and they're on pace to more than double the number of searches in 2016. Andy Martino has been reporting on the rise of the CBP and how it's starting to look more like the NSA. So, Andy, tell me about what the CBP is doing and how its scope has changed over the years. Well, Aaron, the main focus here is that the uh, Border Patrol agents give themselves the right to conduct warrantless searches of electronics, your phone, your laptop, uh, music players, anything they want to look at if you're crossing the border. Uh, There's a big argument right now and some legislation that was just introduced in Congress about whether or not uh, that should be protected by the Fourth Amendment. Now, uh, border agents have been able to look through your briefcase, uh, your suitcase, traditional type of objects for many, many decades. But electronics now and the surveillance and all that that implies has become a battleground. And the backdrop for all this is just that Customs and and Border Patrol feels emboldened by Donald Trump, who, as you can imagine, uh, in all his rhetoric about building the wall and 
Mexicans are rapists and all the things that we know that Donald Trump has said and done around immigration just has created a different climate and anecdotally has increased morale for these border agents who uh, have already gained a lot of uh, technology and ability to do searches under Obama, but now feel especially emboldened under Trump. So I feel like everyone's asking what actually has changed. Like, is this a new thing mm-hmm. under Trump or is this something that happened during the Obama presidency? Like, is there any precedent to what's going on right now? You know, this is where Obama has come under a fair amount of criticism from privacy advocates and from some places in the left is that he really did set up uh, the system that Trump is now taking advantage of. So from the 16 years of George W. Bush and Obama administrations combined, uh, the number of border agents more than doubled from 10,000 to 21,000. Obama invested a lot of money in surveillance, uh, technologies, facial recognition. Uh, Obama, The Obama administration supported the searching of these electronics at the border. So he really laid a lot of groundwork that now Trump can come in with his bellicose rhetoric about Mexicans and Muslims and immigrants and take advantage of all that and expand it as he wants to do and just give border agents a feeling of, well, we like this Trump because he's speaking our language about protecting the borders. But really, it's a fair question, Aaron. The, uh, the setup here is from Bush and even more so from Obama. So I know you talked to some people about who are some people who are actually fighting against this. So who's on the front lines of pushing against this kind of stuff? Well, there's the ACLU, which tends to be involved in these surveillance fights. And and the issue there is, again, whether or not uh, electronics should be protected uh, by the Fourth Amendment. And the ACLU, of course, believes that they should. Uh, It's the Democrat in the Senate, Ron Wyden and Rand Paul, uh, the Republican in Kentucky, of course, who are both coming from different ends of the political spectrum, but are big into privacy rights, who are pushing back on uh, what the CBP is doing. And uh, really just from there, honestly, Aaron, there's been so many things going on in this country under Trump that this isn't an issue that's been particularly well protested or covered or discussed. So while there's some pushback, really NSA-type tactics here are being expanded without a ton of attention or oversight or resistance. So one thing I feel like has been in the news also is this conversation about how the U.S. government is – spying on people's social media practices. Are they doing this with people who are coming in through the border? Is this ramping up more? Is it something to really watch? What's going on there? Yeah, well, this is an example of something that started late Obama. The reporting really came out of December of last year uh, that the U.S. government and the border agents attached to the government were requesting uh, that foreign visitors provide Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, other kinds of social media passwords. And the attempt here, the security community would say, is to prevent things like San Bernardino happening and be aware of what people are saying on social media, people who are planning attacks. But of course, privacy advocates have been uh, resisting. And this is a policy that, like many of these things, began under Obama. And (laughs) Donald Trump shows no signs of wanting to, of course, roll it back. All right, Andy, thanks so much. Okay, thanks, guys. That concludes The Dispatch. I'm Aaron Edwards. Till tomorrow.